Welcome to the conversations with Jason Campbell and Henrietta Galena. Hello. Hello, Henrietta. <laughs> and this week we have a guest. And we're very happy to have artist Alok. And he goes by one name. So we'll Alok, we'll 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 stick with that. <laughs> and I use gender neutral pronouns, they and them. And okay, fantastic. So Henrietta, why don't you tell us what we are getting into this week with Alok? Um, so this week, we're going to talk about degendering fashion and why that's so important. And I think that this is going to be quite profound. I'm kind of almost mentally prepared for this because I think that, you know, obviously we're talking a lot about sustainability and inclusion and representation and diversity and so many important cultural themes in fashion. But what I found when listening to a lot of your public speaking and a lot of your work is actually just how important de-gendering fashion is. And so I guess the question is really around, is de-gendering fashion one of the major issues in our industry? Because I I felt like it was very separate from the message, the larger theme of inclusion and representation. Mm. Mm. It, it feels it's important enough to be separated from that mm. to really be an issue that we look at individually. Mm. You know, I think the reason that it's become... Um, so sort of controversial to talk about is because degendering fashion requires everyone to make a shift. And I think oftentimes inclusion is only incorporated when it can be sidelined as something over there, that it doesn't actually have to shift our behavior over here. So what we notice with a lot of like inclusion rhetoric is we're going to cast like one disabled model or like have one dark skinned black person, but we're not going to actually change the entire frame of the campaign. Mm -hmm. And I think degendering fashion gets at the at the crux, at the core, to actually say, you too need to shift the way that you are doing fashion. It's not just about me. And I think in my career, I've been really trying to push back because I see how the inclusion rhetoric will make this a minority issue. The reason we want to degender fashion is to support the trans community. But I'm like, no, actually, the people who are going to benefit the most from degendering fashion are cis men, because what is men's fashion? That's an oxymoron. <laughs> so right. it's actually going to create more expansive options for what we call menswear to be. Um, and that's actually going to make more beautiful fashion for everyone. So let's peel this back a little bit. When, yeah. we, when we're talking about degendering fashion, mm -hmm. What exactly is it that we're talking about? What is it you would love to see? What are the ideals around that concept? Sure. So I think it's important to remember that actually fashion is already degendered. So it's that first an acknowledgement of that. Fashion becomes gendered as part of a political and market project. So the reason that we gender objects is because we want to have communities that we're selling them to. There's actually no other real reason. And I think that a lot of people are like, <laughs> no, like gender is real for a reason. And I'm like, okay, let's be really honest. What is feminine about painting a nail? Like, is your manhood going to disappear, like melt off of you if you wear an earring? Like, are, that's such an absurd and arcane idea. I can't even, I can't even fathom it. But that shows how fragile cis heteropatriarchy is is that when we're actually saying, here's more options to actually expand your definition of what masculinity and femininity are, and it's like a knee-jerk reaction to be like, absolutely not, I want to be utterly unfashionable for the rest of my life, right? So I think the first is an acknowledgement that fashion is already degendered because every article of clothing does not have a gender identity. It's just a, a cloth or like a fabric. It becomes gendered as part of a political project of saying there are only two genders, Masculine looks like this, feminine looks like this. I think the second step then for me becomes about shifting casting marketing to reflect this value. So actually it looks like when you're a quote feminine perfume line saying, why do we have to call this feminine? Why can't we just be more precise with our language and saying this is like a, a kind of classic or this is an eclectic, like let's actually use more specific vocabulary and let's actually cast people of all genders because once again, if a, quote, man wears this perfume, his manhood is not going to somehow mm -hmm. disappear or melt off of it. And I think the third step, which is really important for me that I think a lot of people miss, is it looks like amplifying and compensating the leadership of queer and trans people. Because I just see so many headlines right now with Harry Styles being congratulated as the face 
of the new masculinity. Or what we saw, I think it was GQ magazine a couple of months ago, had Pharrell on the cover wearing a Montclair dress. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, the face of the new masculinity. <laughs> and that irritates me so much because queer and trans people have been doing this since the very beginning. Yes, they have. But the way that homophobia and transphobia works is the minute that a masculine cis man does even an iota of feminine play, it's revolutionary. And they become the face of something right. that they inherently actually don't represent. Right. But but let's, let's even go back a bit further. We don't grow up without uh, gender norms. We, in fact, is imparted to us almost immediately from birth. Right. And now how do we go about shifting that in the highly indoctrinated way that we live surrounding gender? How do we... But, but more than that specifically is when you speak about, you know, be precise with language, just in our industry and in culture generally, that becomes very niche, mm. right? Because I think part of but why fashion, well, part of why fashion is even gendered in the first place is because there is this idea of selling to masses. Right. I mean, the nature of fashion becomes that there's the 10 mm-hmm. models, the 10 editors, the, the things that everyone can get behind, the, the things that the masses can identify with, right? It's not an accident that like, Taylor Swift is one of the biggest celebrities in the world Mm. versus people that are doing more interesting, more talented, whatever, fail to be recognized. There's a reason why fashion looks the way that it does. So when we talk about being precise and spectrums and gender as a construct and all of these really important topics that we really have to unpack and talk about, you know, these things are complicated and and messy. And I personally welcome that because that's Mm. a space that I feel very comfortable in. But it's not necessarily something that you can sell to the masses Mm. as a concept, which is why things become trends, right? Mm. So even when we look at Mm. race or gender in fashion, this idea, I mean, gay pride this last, this past gay pride was this like new concept Mm. that wasn't, it's just become mainstream. Exactly. But I, but I got to tell you, sorry to interrupt you, Henry, but I, I, this this um, statement that you make about it's not something that can be packaged and sold to the masses, but why not? That, in many no, ways, that's not what I'm hold saying. A second, in many ways, that's why I am so taken by your position, because it's like, it's a kick down door approach and it's saying that, fine, you may this may seem like it would be a niche conversation in another time, but in this age, in fact, it may be uh, indelicate to your ears or it may seem revolutionary. But we're in the time right now for you to hear this kind of conversation, for you to mm-hmm. hear this position. So, in fact, I don't see it as a, I don't see it as a niche. Um, I don't see it as a niche, niche positioning at all. I'm I think not- it's important to contextualize this historically, right? So, in New York City, it used to be illegal to cross-dress in public. People called this the three-article law, meaning yeah. you had to wear at least three articles of clothing associated with your assigned sex, otherwise being risk thrown into prison. This meant that people who were read as women who wore suits in public were thrown into jail. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to 2019. We have women's suits all over the place. We understand the silhouette of a pant to be gender neutral. We did not do that due diligence with skirts and dresses. Mm. Why? Because of misogyny. And it's about sexism. The core of this is not actually, for me, about transphobia. It's about sexism and misogyny, that we tell women what they should look like and we explain what femininity is. And that it's actually not controversial because if I was to tell people you're no longer allowed to wear pants because pants only belong to men, they would be like, are you kidding me? Right. But when it comes to a skirt and a dress and makeup and jewelry, we still hold that back because here's the irony and the paradox. We afford more nuance and creative expression to femininity than we do to masculinity. Mm. Still, we define masculinity as the lack of beauty or an intentional performance of being like, this is just natural, I'm not doing beauty. But we know actually all the industry reports show that men are spending just as much time with their beauty regimens, but the way that they're doing it is to invisibilize that they're using a beauty regimen. So actually when we're thinking about marketing, it always strikes me when people give that argument because I'm like, actually your customer base is going to be bigger when you go gender neutral. Because then the skirt that you're making is not just marketing to women, it's marketing to everyone. And then people will say, well, men don't want to wear skirts. The reasons men don't want to wear skirts, because trust me, when it's 116 degrees outside, a skirt is the alternative to a suit. Like it's going to help everyone because (laughs) you just need some air down there, girl. (laughs) So if you have a campaign that actually shows bodies, diverse bodies wearing a skirt, that gives permission and license to men to purchase that product. 
the reason why there's not demand right now is because the industry is being so conservative. It's like people don't want this, but they want what they've been shown is beautiful. So I think it's exactly. our job to make it beautiful. So there's no argument to there being natural selections for boys and for girls as <laughs> in respect to clothing? No, not at all. And I think it's actually so ridiculous to me because I'm kind of new to the fashion world, right? And I... My entry point into fashion was my personal style, right? Because I think when you grow up as a queer and trans person of color in this country, style becomes one of the only place that you can have agency. Mm -hmm. Because everyone else is saying, this is what you are, this is where you belong. And style is one of the few places you can actually be like, nope, I'm going to defy your expectations. So for me, style was always about the celebration of a kind of reckless creativity and then I look at the fashion world and it's so boring because I'm like, you are literally just doing what Victorian fashion said you should do from literally the 1700s. Like, where has been the progress? Because my friends have been gender neutral since the beginning because we're trying to be beautiful. We're not trying to be conformist. <laughs> 100%. But <laughs> in terms of this system of, like, regulation, mm-hmm. um, how do you... What do you suggest about going about upending this system? Because there, we live by... A, Seen or unseen, but there's a a serious system of regulation by which we live by. Which is exactly my point about what's considered niche is that fashion largely moves with the masses Mm. and and constantly tries to appeal to those masses. So any level of nuance or accuracy when we talk about exactly these things is considered niche because of the mass understanding of what we're talking about. Right. I always say I'm not a minority. I've been minoritized. And the difference between being a minority and being minoritized is I believe in a world without the gender binary, there'd be a lot more people who look like me. And I believe the reason that I experience so much violence and persecution is because when people see me, they see freedom and they've had to restrict their own freedom, right? So I know that there's a direct correlation between the violence that I experience and how much people want to be me. So the more backlash I experience, the more fabulous I am because I'm like, I must be doing something right, right? I think it's really powerful how Greta Thunberg has been doing that reframe where she's saying it shows that we're winning at the climate change conversation because all of these men are attacking mm-hmm. my appearance. They have nowhere else to go. Yeah. People attack my appearance because my ideas are intellectually and historically profound because the way that I come into this, right, I think that's important to say, is not actually about being trans, it's about being Indian, because I know my history, and I know that for us, the silhouette of a skirt never was about femininity. Yes. Literally, in most non-Western cultures, yes. the skirt is a gender-neutral garment. And so the leadership of this conversation for me belongs to African designers, belongs to South Asian designers, mm. who have already been exploring gender-neutral silhouettes for thousands of years, right? So when people say to me, this is a new fringe issue, I'm like, that's your white fragility and your cultural imperialism expand your field of view. What you're actually doing is saying it's new to you because Western culture, as part of its tactics of colonization, forcibly assimilated indigenous peoples into Western modes of dress. So I think what for me I really want to reframe is this is not an issue. It's niche issue. It's made into a niche issue as a strategy of power. Uh And that if you put us over there, then uh, we don't actually have to encounter it. And then when we think about how to, how to resist this regulation, Jason, for me, I take a lot of my cues from how our bodies work. When you have muscle tension, you have to dig into the knot in order to get that tension to be relieved. And I think that's the same thing with culture. We often think in culture, it's controversial, we don't want to go there. But as an artist, I'm saying I'm going straight to the controversy. And I have to hit it in the jugular because it is only by staging that conversation and by going into it can there be relief. But we actually make the cultural knot worse whenever we avoid it. So I'm saying, here we are in 2019, let's go into it. Well, in many ways, you're proposing the very opposite of how we currently live. And, you know, the argument can be like, how can we propose an opposite way of living and expect that to take, to have traction and to take hold in culture as we see it right now? Does that, is that too much of a provocative proposition? Yeah, I think because also a lot of the solutions seem to feel to a lot of people, I think, in decision-making positions, which obviously that also needs to shift as well. It seems counterintuitive because ultimately what you're saying is the solution is is kind of messy, it's painful, but you mm. need to lean into that to mm. actually do the work mm. to to resolve Pretty and heal much. and do all of that stuff, which feels counterintuitive to almost anyone in a decision leader. You <laughs> but know, I think what maker. truly innovative thing in fashion has happened because people were like, this is exactly what people want to <laughs> see. And this 
this checks every single box and that's safe. That is counter to the logic of artistry and fashion. And then I think mm. that raises a larger question about the status of the industry. We no longer care about meaningful creativity. We just care about conformity because that's what sells. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we need to have a real conversation about what the onus on luxury brands should be. Because I understand if you are an emerging business and you don't, you're a small business, a small brand, and you're hearing me right now like, okay, I can't even sell right now. <laughs> like to do this, it's going to be too much. Okay, babe, I understand. I'm not saying this on you. What I'm saying is it's time for the key players in this industry who have millions of dollars to actually make this shift, and then it's going to follow off of that. That's what every fashion trend has done. That's what, what the purpose of luxury fashion has been historically, is that this is the template where people are actually provoking culture, and then it gives permission for other designers to take those cues, right? And I think we were talking about this at the Voices Conference. What happened to the Vogues of the world not caring about what people thought and actually saying, this is what is beautiful, and this is what is fashion. I think it's a bigger commentary on the industry that in the past 15 years, with the rise of social media, people are so concerned with immediate negative feedback. But as an artist, I like immediate negative feedback because that's showing that my ideas matter and are percolating in people. And the way that cultural shift works is not, do you think that people, in the, that, that white people in this country we're like, when they heard about racial justice, we're like, yes, we're going to sign up for racial justice right now. No, they were boycotting. <laughs> they were literally trying to ban it down. But then the, t the test of history shows who was right. So do we only move from a place of what's safe or do we move from a place of what's right? Well, we move from a place of what's right. <laughs> if, you, if you're asking for a literal response to that, what are the first steps? I think the first step for me, like I said, is about casting. And I really can't under effort and underemphasize this because when people hear me, they're like, okay, you want us to change our garments? I'm like, no, babe, you can continue to make the exact same garments that you're doing. But how are you showing how those garments fit into the world? That's what casting is for me, is showing the kinds of bodies that can actually interact with your product, right? And so if we have casting that actually is people of diverse genders, races, abilities, and sizes, that actually does cultural change. I believe as an image maker that images touch us. We don't just see images, mm -hmm. images create the social world. So when we create images of things that people have not seen in the world, it creates a horizon of possibility which materially turns into people shifting. That's what the work of culture is, is we constantly think culture is just representing the world, but I think that culture is creating the world, right? So the, the work of a curator or the work of a casting agent for me is so vital in this conversation because show people what it, how beautiful it is. Because people think that gender nonconformity has to be failure because the media representation we have right now is so paltry. The only role models I had growing up were like him from the Powerpuff Girls, like villainous people <laughs> who were like angry and monstrous. And so when people see me being so fabulous, they're gagging because I'm like, yes, I'm actually amazing, articulate, wonderful, profound, all these things that you've been taught that I can't be. And what the job of a casting agent is, is to show this is not only beautiful, it's irresistible. I think the second thing is we need to actually de-gender the ways that we segregate the fashion world. This looks like moving beyond men's fashion week and women's fashion week, moving beyond men's stores, women's stores, men's magazines, women's magazines. And this is for many reasons. One, when we're marketing to women, let's be honest, we're marketing to thin women. That actually plus size women have been having to wear men's clothes for a very long time because women's sizes don't actually include them. When we're talking about men and women, we're talking about a stereotype of white, cis, thin, able-bodied men and women. We're not even talking about all men or women. On the ground, people who identify as men and women are actually drawing from both men's and women's things to make it work for their bodies. It's about moving away from gender towards talking about size. That's the real conversation. And I think the natural ally with gender-neutral fashion is actually talking about, talk about plus size and size inclusivity. Because what we need to actually say is not this is a men's garment, this is a woman's garment. Here's the actual measurements of this garment, and will it fit your body, you know? And then I think the third step is actually, like, I can't underemphasize this so much, we need trans and non-binary designers at the forefront of this conversation, right? People like Harris Reid in London, 
who designed Harry Styles' outfit. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really interesting dynamic that Harry Styles gets the celebration, whereas Harris Reid, who's actually gender fluid, is absented from that conversation. (laughs) And I think this is a larger issue where the fashion world erases the people who are actually doing the labor. We need to know who's making these garments. What are their stories? What are their motivations? Not just the faces of who just wear a garment for one photo shoot, you know? So I really believe, especially as a trans and non-binary creative myself, that... When people say this is impossible, what they're actually saying is you're not alive. I'm here right now and it's possible. So if you show people what possible, that's why Laverne Cox says, I'm not a role model, I'm a possibility model. The difference between being a role model and a possibility model is when you're a possibility model, you show people that the things that they thought were impossible are deeply possible because I'm right here right now. And by elevating and amplifying the leadership of trans and non-binary creatives, we show the world, oh, there have been people who have been doing this since the beginning, Cool, it's not that big of a deal. I believe that trans justice is about cis people catching up with us because we've been on the front lines of culture. We've been the most fashionable people. We created the contemporary fashion and beauty industry. We taught people how to pose. We taught, we did their makeup. Yeah. We styled their outfits. And people want to tell me that I'm new in fashion. Girl, my labor has been here since the very beginning. Catch <laughs> up with me. Well, it's funny, Henry. You know, this this actually brings up a lot of a lot of issues that we have discussed in this forum. One of them, you you speak about casting being a, a, a first step, let's say. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, we've been talking about in terms of inclusivity and diversity. We're talking about going deeper. We're talking about representation in the in, in the executive ranks. But in sure. many ways, your your proposition about the visibility being seen and also being seen in let's call it unexpected garments, mm. depending on your depending on your what, what you um, associate yourself with gender wise. I find that this. Is a very this is a very different argument. It's a very different argument than, than what we've discussed in a more deeper sense. Like this is almost the beginning in some ways of like showing that we can see uh, someone who identifies as a man in a in a in a prominent ad, and she, he or she can be wearing a dress, whatever right. he or she wants, in very different ways. In many ways, we're calling to just see it. First, we need to see it, right. and then that will lessen the the embrace well, of I it. I think we can hold space for both because right. ultimately, there are realistically. There are challenges around this idea of casting because I think it's really about who's making those decisions mm. and who's in, who's manifesting mm. that for you. Mm. So that's the whole argument around public-facing changes mm. that don't actually really impact the systemic problems. That's also when we talk about cultural appropriation mm. and just the gaps that we see because ultimately, um, you know, when we talk about, for instance, um, racial diversity within fashion, it's not quite the same thing when you have white decision makers, white image makers trying to interpret the black existence or the black image. So I really think it's the exact same thing where we could fall into some challenges if it just becomes a casting proposition and not actually really about who's actually, who are the creatives, who are the decision makers, who are these gatekeepers, because ultimately it still feels very imbalanced in terms of what we will be seeing from a public-facing standpoint. I think what I'm asking for is a different ethics around image-making because I I think about this especially in the social media generation where we're just resharing images without thinking about who styled this shoe, who's the makeup artist behind the shoe. And I think as consumers, we need to start asking those questions. Like, we are so easily seduced by an image without actually thinking about all the things that are going behind it. Was this model compensated? Were these garments made in a sweatshop factory? That we have to actually develop a critical acumen around image making. And I think that it's easy for me to point fingers at other people, but I'm also trying to do this myself. Because in a reshare, reblog culture, we lose so much of the labor that goes into the image production. And once we develop that acumen, we can actually start having these conversations about like, okay, my fear, my genuine fear is that my ideas are so contagious, they will travel beyond my body. That actually, people who will listen to this podcast will be like, yes, we're going to go gender neutral. And then the people who are going to make money from gender neutrality are white, cis, straight people, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening. Let's be honest, that's what's happening with racial diversity right now. Mm -hmm. That actually white companies are profiting off of tokenizing black and brown people, Mm -hmm. but that money and resources and cultural zeitgeist is not going to black and brown people. Mm -hmm. And that when black and brown people actually do that work, they get punished for it because they don't have the money or infrastructure that a lot of these white companies do, right? So for me, it's also, I think they're really connected because when I'm saying casting, I'm not just meaning casting in the sort of act of, here's one campaign. 
I'm meaning how did bodies get into a room to begin with? Mm -hmm. Because we are casted into certain positions by structural racism and by transphobia. When people look at me, they're comfortable casting me as a stage performer. They're not comfortable casting me as a CEO. Why? Because of your misogyny, you think that someone who is this articulate, this fabulous, and this beautiful can't also have business acumen. Mm -hmm. Darling, I can make a business decision in a six-inch heel. These things are not mutually exclusive. (laughs) Don't cast me out of it. I think the next point I want to make is the reason I have this emphasis on visual culture is historically grounded, right? What I was talking about with the three three articles law, I, I researched colonial era gender policing laws across the world. Where I'm from in India, the British tried to pursue a strategy of complete cultural annihilation of people like me. They literally tried to completely commit a cultural genocide on gender variant and third gender people. There were probably only a thousand plus of us, but we were so powerful, we had to be disappeared right? And there's a difference between murdering someone and disappearing them. And, and for me, disappearance suggests that our image is so potent and so articulate that if people were to be exposed to it, that would unravel the myth of their own life. So for me, I think visual politics and aesthetics has always been in my trans praxis because people want to pretend like I don't exist. I'm literally here right now, and people are saying there's only two genders, and I'm like... I'm here right now. I'm, I'm not too gender. Mm-hmm. I'm here right now, and people are saying this trans non-binary conversation is new. No, no, no. I can point you to thousands of years of legacies of gender-varying people who were actually the leaders, the spiritual leaders, guides, and political leaders of our communities. The reason we were targeted first by white colonists is because, ironically, they understood our power yes. more than our own people did. Okay. Yes, we've See, been saying okay. that's the thing. And that really works across the spectrum it of really does. not knowing and understanding your own power. But that right. also is a cultural conditioning. That's how right. we speak to each other. Because I don't know if you've experienced this, but in trying to have these very kind of complicated and layered conversations that really work to upend the systems that, for the most part, a lot of people have been so indoct- indoctrinated, they're not even aware that they're a part of this system, you get labeled as difficult right. or you're a troublemaker. Right. Or it's just, it's just, oh, it's just, oh gosh, all the time and and all the time we spend talking about this thing when we just really need to get on and crack on. We need to figure out what spaces we even have to have these conversations mm. and who we're having these conversations with. Because mm. I feel like there's a lot of echo chambering. Mm. We're all having conversations with fairly like-minded right. people. But then there's a challenge to actually um, go outside of that to make right. meaningful change, which I'm, I personally find as a struggle as a black female hmm. in this industry. So I can only imagine how a conversation that feels even more complicated, you know, in the mainstream would be kind of received. Hmm. Yeah, I think the truth is we have to work twice as hard because people will already try to discredit and belittle our ideas, our knowledge systems, and our experiences. But that's why I study. (laughs) And I know my history. I know my facts. I know my truth. I have my education, both personally and professionally. And I have the CV to back up everything that I'm saying, right? And at some level, what I believe is that we have to become so irresistible that people cannot resist us. And I think anyone who will come and see me perform may not agree with what I'm saying, may not even understand what I'm saying, but they will say this person is irresistible, right? And so for me, it's not a question of like, oh, I need to be empowered because I think that's the framework right now in the fashion industry is we just need to empower diverse voices to speak their truth. Mm. I've been speaking my truth. (laughs) You've just been having these horrible headphones where you can't actually register the truth that is being spoken. But Alok, I have to say, you're no doubt irresistible for sure. That's why you're here and that's why we're having this conversation. But even for someone like myself who, let's say, I've been uh, living on this gender fluid spectrum without knowing so (laughs) pretty much all my life and pushing the envelopes in my own way, maybe feeling some of the same things that you have, but I haven't been as political about Mm. it. I've been just mainly expressing myself Mm. personally, you know, Mm. on that platform. And I have to say, like, it's still a provocative thing. In many ways, you're accelerating my thinking. I haven't, I, mm. I haven't been on the 
front lines and you're thinking, do I, I mm. share the same, I share your thoughts. Um, I have not been on the front lines because I didn't actually know that we were there. Right. So part of the reason in speaking to you is also to be like, oh, wait, 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 wait. We have to play, <laughs> we got to play catch up. Right. I know I'm, I'm with right. you. Right. I hear you loud right. and clear and I want to get to exactly where you are. And right. I remember, you're speaking to the to the converted right, right, right. and there are many people that are in, that you know, that are of my class right. who would be like, wow, wow, we're, we're, we're here. I right. didn't know that in the same way I have to say maybe you, maybe you wouldn't agree but in the same way that gay marriage I didn't realize that we were so close that gay marriage was there uh, was here until we were actually there right. I was like wow and right. in many ways I have to say this degendering thing that's why I really have been leaning in to you since I've met you I've been like I wow wow did I miss did I miss a part of this urgent call yes as I said I've been doing me for a long mm, time mm. but in terms of being out there on the front lines speaking on mm. writing on you know making sure that I'm educating at least my 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 local community on no I haven't I mm. haven't been I haven't taken the prescription mm. so I'm still downloading and part of mm. this forum as I said is to download more mm. and I would say that a lot of people a lot of our audience out there um, would are gonna be like wow this is this is this feels nascent it feels new mm. it feels innovative somehow but mm. it has to accelerate and I think that's the question of is degendering fashion one of the biggest issues of our time particularly in fashion because if you're experiencing that, I think when it that's why I was talking about the idea of niche, because to the masses, I don't even know if people are really awake to the fact that this is a challenge where people are actually like, like dying. <laughs> like right. this is a really sick, people don't right. even that's, really, don't. we're that's so indoctrinated thing, right. into a system that they're not really even aware of the system. The system right. is invisible. So this idea of everyone's divided into these two camps of male right. and female, the end, right. you know, like, so my challenge is in trying to think about how do we accelerate this to being one of the larger issues that we tackle along with sustainability, right. inclusion, is this is an important issue. How are we going to accelerate ourselves mm. into getting there when a lot of people, both informed and other, aren't even aware that this is a Precisely. challenge? Well, I think that you're doing it right now because for me, I hear you both. But I also feel like we don't give ourselves credit for knowing the strategies because we've been so gaslit by a system that constantly says, you don't know, but we know. We what know. it actually looks like is amplifying the leaders who need to be amplified. And that's exactly what you're doing right now. It's like, <laughs> if I just was given money and resources and invitations, I could make this happen. Give me five years. Mm. But I'm systematically gatekept out, right? So what I actually need is people who are not trans to actually think, what am I doing in my own life to amplify the leadership of trans people? Because when trans people are free, I will be free. And mm -hmm. we don't have that consequence right now because right now people think, oh, it's just a struggle over there. But I need people to understand, my ancestors got criminalized and murdered for existing in public because they were fighting for self-expression for everybody, not yes. just for themselves. And because they were outside, like when we think about the history of contemporary fashion, a lot of the aesthetics that have become mainstream were first templated on the most vulnerable bodies. Black bodies, sex workers, poor people, trans people. Mm -hmm. Where did acrylics and nails come from? Where did hair extensions come from? Where did particular kinds of eye makeup come from? They came, I've been reading about the history of cosmetics. A lot of what we understand to be the current face that's in right now was first created by sex workers. They were called painted ladies. People thought that wearing makeup was a lowbrow thing that you did if you were a hoe. And now we look at where we are right now and those aesthetics traveled beyond sex working communities without challenging the stigma against sex workers. Well, right? just look at our vernacular. I mean, look at the vernacular in the industry. Even white male, it's, you know, all of this yes queen. And right. it's, it's interesting that... Petite, right? <laughs> right, like I've been telling Jason so much ever since meeting Jason, it just really frustrates me that I didn't know about you because for me, you are a fashion revolutionary from the beginning. But I see the ways in which your ideas travel your aesthetics travel, but not your personhood, right? And that's the danger about the fashion world is it separates our personhood from our aesthetics. And what the cultural appropriation dialogue is actually saying, no, 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 you can't have this without also having yes. me. Well, it's funny, and you mentioned that, and I won't get into this because this is a tangential, but at the event, a very prominent person said to me, and this is a BOF Voices event, someone I've known a very long time and who I haven't seen in a long time, but what he chose to say to me in being delighted to see me after many years, like, oh, I miss your looks. Oh. Okay. 
And I think that really puts it into yep, context. Exactly. Like, I'm in this very, you know, let's call it rarefied room with all these decision makers and and power players. And I'm obviously there. And that is that is what you choose to recall with me, that I miss your looks. Obviously, my 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 value is right. greater than the whatever looks that I, I you've seen me over the years in. But again, and that's let the me focus. be honest with you, Jason. If we were cis women, people would understand this as sexism. But because we're not women, people constantly diminish what we're experiencing and blame it on us. When actually, I am constantly and thoroughly reduced to my image all the time. When it's like literally I could speak for 10 hours and people would be like, wow, I love their heels. <laughs> yes. And we would never allow that to happen to women. There would be people being like, that's sexism. You're reducing her to her looks. But those same cis straight women will do the exact same sexism to gay men and trans people. 100%. Now, what about the role of women in this fight? Mm-hmm. Do Are you considering them of your greatest ally in this? Obviously, everyone has to participate in this in this change that you're trying to mm-hmm. um, that you're advocating. But do women have a special role in the equation here? I think it's really complicated because women are some of the biggest supporters of this and some of the biggest detractors, right? So it's important to understand how the rhetoric of feminism is being manipulated specifically to target trans and gender nonconforming people. The argument goes: when you're calling for gender neutrality, you're erasing my right to be a woman. And what that, that is such a misunderstanding of what gender neutrality is. Gender neutral includes women, includes men, and includes all other genders, right? When we say people who give birth, that doesn't erase women who give birth because women are also people. But we're acknowledging that there are men who give birth who happen to be trans, and there are non-binary people who give birth who happen to be non-binary. When we say people, it's actually a more inclusive framework. This is not about erasure. It's about entitlement. And the difference between erasure and entitlement is entitlement says, I deserve to universalize my particular experiences to be the experience. I thought feminism was a protest of the particular becoming universal. But what a lot of cis feminists have done is repealed one male universal and replaced their own female universal. But I think that the threat of gender nonconforming people like me is we're calling feminism's bluff. And we're actually saying, for me, feminism is not about women's equality with men. Feminism is challenging the very basis of why we divide 7 billion-plus people in the world into man and woman. Ambition and think more deeply, darling. And once again, this is not a new conversation because trans and gender nonconforming people have been here since the very beginning for thousands of years. But what happened is that white feminism became synonymous with feminism. So we lost our traditions of black, brown, indigenous feminism, which already always understood trans and gender nonconforming people as your siblings in the fight. So for me, I see trans-exclusionary feminism as an iteration of white feminism. And unfortunately, a lot of black and brown women have internalized those white feminist ideas where they regurgitate what they've been told onto us. And so I actually think it's a really difficult situation because on the one hand, I, I know so many incredible women who are like, yes, absolutely, I'm on board. But on the other hand, there are hundreds of pieces of anti-trans legislation that are being debated right now in the United States using the rhetoric of feminism, mm-hmm. saying we're doing this to protect women and girls. When these same Republicans have never cared at all about women's rights, but they somehow care about it as a means to discriminate against trans people. And as a trans movement, we're sitting here being like, why are cis women not angry how men are using them as pawns to do transphobic violence? I've been waiting for cis women's organizations in this country to make it a major priority to be like, hey, our personhood and our feminism is being deployed in the service of anti-trans violence. We don't fuck with that. But they're silent. Are you... Mm, that's bleak. Um, are you optimistic that we can all coexist? 100%. Because I believe as an artist, what I'm trying to do is to create a new world in this world. So every time someone's coming to a performance or something that I've curated, we create this future now. And when people want to tell me that it's impossible, I'm like, come and see what we've done, right? And for me, that is the worst thing you can tell an artist is you're too visionary for your times or you're ahead of your times. That kills artists, right? 
Because actually what you're saying is, I'm too lazy to do due diligence to mm-hmm. your craft. What that's actually saying is, I just don't care enough about your life or I'm too provoked by your existence, right? Because when we're talking about provocation, I, I reject that logic because I exist. And what they're saying is that my existence is a provocation. <laughs> like, that's so violent. Like, if I was to literally tell cis people, you existing as a man or woman, that's a radical threat to my existence. <laughs> I would be, the people think that was absurd. So for me, I don't have a cis framework of the world. Because I exist, all this stuff is just so easy and natural. And to be made into a threat simply for existing is so dehumanizing. Well, let's talk about let's talk about the language. Let's talk about pronouns. Let's talk about some of the language surrounding this 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 degenerating conversation. I, I and this happens in other areas of discussion where social justice is concerned. Um, but I feel that people are trying to some people are trying to Shanghai this conversation by being kind of hung up on the the pronoun. Oh, I yes. can't wrap my head. Yes. I can't wrap my head around Ugh. that. Like, oh, they, but but what, yes. what, what 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 does um you know masculine spectrum, trans masculine right. spectrum, and all these sort of things mean? I find that there's a there's a willful laziness right. when it comes to even embracing right. some of this. You know, just embracing the language, and that's a that's an easy way right. of just dismissing a very important cultural movement. Right. And people will just dismiss it with a one like that. 100%. Like, oh, they, them, what, what, what are they asking for? But the for? irony is those same people have memorized all the individual <laughs> names of everyone in their life. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we don't call every single person, every single male Michael and every single person Jane. We say that there's actually as many names as there are women and we learn those names and do due diligence to them. Yes, if someone changes their name and says, okay, I'm actually going not by Janice anymore, I'm going by Jan, People will be like, okay, Jan, I'm gonna work to do that. <laughs> it's not a it's it's about it's it's about transphobia. And we need to call a spade a spade. Like people want to make it about inconvenience, but it's actually about transphobia. Because the thing is, if you thought that our lives were worthy, if you thought that we you should not be experiencing work. violence, yeah. you would do the work. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> This is too much. You know when you just really are just breaking it down to a point where you're just like this and this is what I'm I, I, I'm kind of speechless. No, I won't. Because you really make a case for absolutely everything. I sit there and I'm like, but is it because of leadership positions? Leadership positions? Is it because of money and fashion and what sells and what the mainstream understand? And is it because of the vernacular and the understanding and the education? You really break it down to a really baseline understanding of like, if you could do the work here, you could do the work here. If mm-hmm. you understand this, you can understand that. And you really make a case that I just don't know how we got here. And uh, and also at the crux of that, this reinforcement of like gender norms, like that is like that. I feel that that's at the crux of all of this. And you're asking for the upending of that system. But I just think at that point, at that very point is where this cataclysmic thing <laughs> is, is, is happening. And right. I, I find it to be almost um almost dangerous. Right. So let's let's <laughs> let's read this in a real example. So Tom Brown, a designer in New York City, did a sort of campaign where it had a bunch of people playing football outside. And it just happened to have people who are red as male wearing skirts, right? And it just so happened that some of these folks were black. And when they posted images on Instagram of this campaign, I went through and I read the comments and people were literally saying, this is disgusting. This is despicable. How could you ever do this? This is the decline of culture. This is an attack on black masculinity. This is disgusting. Like, and, and the vitriol with which it engendered was unparalleled to anything I've ever seen. Right. And this is for an image. Right. And this is literally, and especially the, the person who was, it was a rapper who was wearing this was wearing a skirt and pants. Like it wasn't even just a skirt, right? <laughs> and people were like, this is the end of civilization, right? And I want us to really sit with that and be like, this is what black and brown, trans and gender nonconforming people go through every single minute. You experience one iota of that with a cute little photo campaign and your next photo you're going to return to whatever normative masculinity or femininity you're doing. And this is the point that I want to make. It's not just that I'm oppressed, it's that your hand is wrapped around my neck. Because that's the difference. It's easy for people to be like, oh, I'm so sorry that you're going through so much, Alok. Like, I'm so sorry that you can't walk outside without having people insult you, physically assault you, and degrade you. But it is another thing to say, I am perpetuating a culture 
which enables those people to do that to you. And this is the point that is lost in the gender-neutral conversation. This is an anti-violence imperative. Fashion and beauty industries are directly fueling toxic, mythological gender stereotypes that are killing my community. And the vehemence with which I fight is because I understand the stakes of this. If I go outside wearing pants, people leave me alone. Mm -hmm. If I go outside wearing a miniskirt, I could be murdered. <laughs> and you want to tell me that that is okay in 2019, that I can't dress in the way that I want to dress without fearing that form of brutality? The way that we resist that is where everyone, and Casey Gerald had a speech about this on Voices last year. He said, the way that solidarity works is you don't say, I'm comfortable with those people being called a faggot. You say, I will be called a faggot until being a faggot no longer is a slur. And until everyone else is able to sit and what I go through for one minute, don't tell me that you care about me. So for me, gender neutrality is also an act of allyship and solidarity to actually be like, oh, yeah, my, my, my masculinity or my feminity has been questioned right now, but that's okay because these are toxic ideas anyways that are hurting people who are not me. And, you know, I can't help but to think of a, another controversial case that arose this week surrounding the Dwayne Wade's uh, young son right. who happened to have had, I think he had nail polish on and, and a little crop top. top. Those comments were And the comments, so toxic. and this is like a, like a 10-year-old boy, and the comments were so, so toxic. And I have to say, yes, of course, I, I, I paid attention to the Tom Brown football game, but with this young child, right. this young child. So that shows you the future. I mean, you know, adults across right. the country came for this child. A child. A child. <laughs> so they're afraid right. that, you know, a next generation is going down this road of gender fluidity and the end of civilization as you, um, as a doomsday scenario that you you painted before. Yeah, that it, that's not showing progress if a culture can come for a single child And it's just painful like that. for us because we went through that as kids. 100%. You know? And 100%. I think that what's really upsetting to me, and I really want to say this, is the betrayal from gay and lesbian cis people to trans and gender variant people. Because the reason you all were targeted was because people thought that you were us. When you were a little kid, they weren't mad about who you loved. They were mad because you were feminine or because you were too masculine. And that you spent your entire life trying to tell and convince straight cis people, no, I'm just like you. And then you threw us under the bus. 100%. The people who started LGBT politics were gender variant people like Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, and Miss Major. When you listen to what they were saying at the Stonewall Rebellion 50 years ago, is they were saying we should be able to wear whatever we want without fear of violence or persecution. And that their radical authenticity and visibility created the space for gay men to get marriage, created the space for lesbian people to be included into the feminist movement, right? But then you turn around and you do homophobia and transphobia better than straight people. 100%. And this is what I always say. People, white people are so lazy, they make people of color do the work of racism for them. Straight people are so lazy, they make gay people do the work of homophobia for them. I experience more homophobia and transphobia from my own community than I do from outside of it. Even within the trans community, we have so deeply internalized these Western colonial gender binaries that people will always say, Alok is not legitimately trans because they've not medically transitioned. Or Alok is not legitimately trans because non-binary is something they're making up. And I'm just sitting here like, whoa, this is the danger. And I guess what I mean this as an end to say is I need help. Like, I need help. No matter how confident I am, no matter how educated I am, no matter how articulate I am, no one will listen to me like they will listen to gender-conforming people. I know that if I looked like what society thought of as a masculine man or a feminine woman and I made gender neutrality my issue, it would get much more traction than it does. But the reason that it's not getting the traction it does is because the people preaching this gospel are people who are seen as irrelevant and disposable by society. So listen to this and think, what are you going to use in your platform such that the people who have been on the front lines will be centered? It seems like a big part of the solution is that it's incumbent on all of us to do some internal work, mm. right? Like, why does X feel threatened if Y happens? Or being threatened by things that are external, what does that mean in terms of, like, how we feel about ourselves and what we're projecting? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's the tricky piece of it, that it's, you can't control what's outside, what's external to you, but how do we 
make society do work on themselves. There's mm. a lot of insecurity, there's mm. a lot of pain, there's a lot of things that need to be confronted. I mean, mm. when we're talking about these hateful, toxic comments about what a 10-year-old is wearing, mm -hmm. like, how does how does him existing impact you to a point where you feel the need to pick up your phone and put that toxicity out there? Does that make right. you feel good? Are you hurting in some way? Like what happened to you in the past? And there's this whole other psychological element about individual work that I think is a piece of this. 100%. And that's very complicated. But because I think it, it speaks to, to exactly what you're talking about, Alok how insecure that we we are surrounding this issue right. mm -hmm. of gender and um and ide gender identity i think it's it really hits at our core and you mentioned you know the examples that we gave were essentially in the black community and i know that all too well sort of how discriminatory they are and mind you this is from a marginalized group right who works exactly actively so to try to the, change so the where's conditions. the empathy this is the irony oh, it's well, like where is that empathy as 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 a community who are often persecuted and attacked right. to then go in and do that because something is what infringing your feelings or your right you know like Where's it's that, well, that's why I think it's important that we're here having this conversation because we we are going to rely on someone like yourself and our own work here, you know, with the two other participants at this table. Yeah, we we are part of the change. We we're we're starting to do our part. And as I said, hopefully we're, we're giving this platform to have you accelerate even more and in other ways that we can help you in order to, to spread the message and spread the word. Because, yes, we do need leaders. We do need, um, you know, we do need people who are on the front lines fighting the fight. I think we need healing. Like, I think yeah, that, I think do. especially as Black, Indigenous people of color, like, we have been taught that we have to be strong and that we have to be, like, confident, but we never actually got to say, I'm depressed and I'm broken and I don't know. And I, and I think that for me, what I loved and love about being queer is that in queer community, I had a space to be broken because I met other people who were abandoned by their families I met other people who are misrecognized and misgendered by society. And in each other's mutual brokenness, we healed by articulating our wound. But the issue is most people don't even know that they're wounded. So they're walking around with blood gushing out of them. And I'm like, you're wounded, you're wounded. And they're like, no, I'm strong. <laughs> I have I, to be strong and inspiring <laughs> right. at all times. But what I love about queer and trans community, mm -hmm. or at least the communities I found, and in people like Jason, we are fluent in the ways that we have been hurt. But that's what makes us stronger. Like when we met and we spoke about our lives, you were able to be like, yeah, you know, I've been through a lot of shit. But we are honest about that because when you're honest about pain, like I said about get, getting into the knot, you're actually able to reckon with what happened, you know? But I don't think that there's been a serious reckoning. And I especially don't think that there's been a serious reckoning of the gender trauma of people of color. That actually, like, that really needs to happen because I experienced this as an Indian person. The biggest detractors I have are Indian cis men who literally try to torment me. And I know that the reason they torment me is because they're afraid that I represent what white people see them as. Yes. And I look at them and I say, wow, you pretend that you're so brown, that you're so Indian, but there is nothing more white than your homophobia and transphobia. It's not that gay and trans people were the cultural import, it's that your homophobia and transphobia were the cultural import. I'm actually just as brown, if not more than you, because the way that I accessed my gender was by unlearning the white colonial gender binary. So come and join me and learn your real history and unlearn this or remain committed to your own unhappiness. Because at the end of the day, like I feel bad for them, but I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> and the irony is they probably don't even know that they're unhappy. Right, I know. It's so sad. I'd rather be unhappy and know about it than be <laughs> that tragic where you're unhappy and you don't even know that you're like, that's just pathetic. The truth, well, the truth, it all comes down to the truth. It all comes down to the truth. And Alok, I know that we just scratched the surface of this conversation. I, we, we really could carry this on for a few more hours, but I think we're going to have to revisit this conversation at another time. But how riveting. Thank you so, so much, much for coming. So much to think about. Yeah, you're absolutely lot. incredible. You've really given us a lot to think about. And, and you're doing a important lot of work, to do. work. You're doing you. important yeah. work. You're doing important work just out there in culture, not as it aligns to us personally or professionally but really there's a greater there's a greater charge out there uh, out there for you in culture and it's fantastic thank you and thank you for being here thanks for having me thank you